Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I wish again to thank Father Sheridan and Franciscan University for the invitation to speak today at the symposium series celebrating the 25th anniversary of the promulgation of the Apostolic Constitution Ex Corte Ecclesiae on Catholic universities. How profound that the beginning part of the text from which the title is usually derived in a papal document goes as such, born from the heart of the church. A Catholic university is located in that course of tradition, which may be traced back to the very origin of the university itself as an institution. I am very grateful for our collaboration these past three years of my episcopate, as well as today and in the years to come. For I am at your disposal as both your diocesan bishop and as your brother in Jesus Christ. As I have mentioned before, many of my friends pursued undergraduate and graduate degrees here and have very fond memories of their time here. The fact is I consider myself truly fortunate, better yet, blessed, to have Franciscan University within the demographics of my pastoral responsibilities as the diocesan bishop, the diocesan ordinary. The question remains, though, not whether we think or not with the heart of church. I know how Franciscan thinks. No, how does the bishop and the university continue to cultivate dialogue and consequently cooperate in an effective manner by which we may impact a world beyond our borders, beyond our borders of the rigors of formal academic studies and local episcopate governance. This is not to say that these attributes are mutually exclusive to academia, but how best may they be employed in a world which holds sovereignty as a virtue and casts a suspicious eye on authority in general? Sources to which I will reference, in addition, of course, to sacred scripture, will be Ex Corte Ecclesiae, from the heart of the church, the Apostolic Constitution by St. John Paul and Catholic Universities, also Pastoris Courageous, the post-synodal apostolic exhortation of St. John Paul on the bishop, servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the hope of the world. The final list of propositions from the 13th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops, October 12, 7th to 28th, and the Directory of the Pastoral Ministry of Bishops, published by the Congregation of Bishops in 2004 and shared with my newly ordained brother bishops and me 
In September of 2012, on the occasion of our attendance of the Conference for Newly Ordained Bishops, also affectionately known as Baby Bishop School. That's what's known by many of the seminarians in Rome, and being a seminarian in Rome, I admit, that's what we called it as well. I just didn't realize I was going to become that. Two years ago, I provided a presentation entitled A Shepherd's Perspective on the New Evangelization. In preparing for this morning's conference, I have gleaned much from that talk in substance as well as in direction. I begin today with an excerpt from the first letter of Peter, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, which begins chapter 4 from the text, Directory of the Pastoral Ministry of Bishops. Tend the flock of God. That is your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will obtain the unfading crown of glory. The very scripture passage is a clear Episcopal mandate to live by example and to encourage a living encounter with Jesus Christ. Coercion and complacency are not in the shepherd's vocabulary. Entitlement is not an option. As the directory astutely asserts, all credit goes to God's grace as we come to live in Christ. Still, here at Franciscan University, enthusiasm and courage have pivotal roles in your success. And when it comes to enthusiasm and courage, without question, you get a 10. And I'm very grateful. But where do we go from there? You see, at any Catholic university, who wants to be a member of a lackluster, depressed, and cowardly community? No hands raised, of course. The tone, both from the local ordinary and the Catholic university, determines the answer to this question. This morning, I will address our common Christian pilgrimage. In this postmodern world of ours, identifying the complementary yet distinct roles of the bishop and the Catholic University. And finally, how our dialogue and cooperation may best serve the universal call to evangelize. You will find that this presentation will be top-heavy in the very definition of the roles of both the ordinary and the university, but will also identify the dual dovetail into the sub-themes of dialogue and cooperation. Let us first begin with my role as diocesan bishop as chief shepherd of this local church. And that brings me to what I wish to share with you today. In a nutshell, with regard to St. Augustine's words, he spoke about the danger of elevating oneself and not immersing oneself in the midst of the community. Elevating oneself is a danger. 
immersing oneself in community is actually a gift. And that's certainly a danger that could occur in my own office as well. I'm very grateful to visit Franciscan University and how affable everybody is toward me. And that says a lot about, of course, the respect of the church by the individuals at the school. I take it to heart, but I realize the respect is for Jesus Christ first, not first for Jeffrey Mark Monforton. That may be my name, but who I am, who I represent as a successor of the apostles is well beyond simply the nomenclature of the name I've carried since May 5th, 1963. As I have mentioned perhaps too often, at my ordination and installation here at Franciscan University in the Finnegan Fieldhouse, before Finnegan Fieldhouse 2.0, the new and improved version, I informed you that I am yours. As our Holy Father states time and time again, St. Francis indicates the bishops are not desk jockeys. We do not spend all of our time in airports. We have pastoral responsibility. Responsibility to be among my people. That is what a pastor does. Moreover, Jesus is quite clear, quite direct in the gospel according to John, namely, chapter 10, verse 11b, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This very quote graces my holy card upon ordination to the priesthood in 1994, as it does also my Episcopal ordination holy card of 2012, communicating the continuity to my service, of my service to Jesus Christ and his church. Finally, I purposely chose the New Evangelization Rich quote, from chapter 10, verse 17, from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, as my official Episcopal motto, faith comes from hearing. In other words, I am my brother's keeper, especially when it comes to the stability of his faith. As instructed in the 2003 post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Pastoris Gregis, St. John Paul reminds the bishop of the threefold munera to teach, to sanctify, and to govern. On that note, we have show and tell. One of my former students who's in class right here reminded me that I handed out my Episcopal lineage in class a year ago. I'm going to hand it to you right now to explain to you just exactly how deep the authority of a bishop runs, it's the Holy Spirit, but how it's been handed on from one to another to another. With Archbishop Flint to Archbishop Schnur to Bishop Monforton, it goes back, you'll identify some popes in here, some saints as well. So I'll let you pass it around. If you're looking at this, I won't believe you're not paying attention. This is a handout. <laughs> The quiz at the end will only be worth 25 points, just so you know. <laughs> These three offices, as teacher, sanctifier, and governor, 
Stand, each one stands, but one cannot stand without the other two. As St. Augustine states, my ministry is a ministry of love, amoris officium. I am reminded of the Trinitarian foundation of my Episcopal ministry and my bishop's chair, a symbol of paternal authority. At my Episcopal ordination, I put on Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, to be shepherd and spouse. The Holy Spirit himself at my anointing provides me the ability to be, I quote, a living continuation of the mystery of Christ for the church. This collegial vocation I possess is not limited in scope with or to me and my brother bishops, but you as well, you are participants. Recall the words of St. Augustine, for you I'm a bishop, with you I am a Christian. On a personal note, I am grateful to the two bishops who provided me the so-called pastoral template for the relationship between the diocesan bishop and the Catholic university residing within his own diocese. I had the privilege to serve and to collaborate with Cardinal Maida and Archbishop Vigneron when I was Rector President of Sacred Heart Major Seminary. I appreciated, I depended on their pastoral care, their pastoral direction, as well as their confidence and trust in me as I maintained the helm of a very seaworthy ship, not unlike Franciscan here, which still had to negotiate the ever-growing secular-oriented society and an economy then on the brink of recession. The relationship between the Archdiocese of Detroit and Sacred Heart Major Seminary was symbiotic, namely, the health of one had a direct impact on the status of the other. While the relationship between the diocesan seminary and the diocesan bishop is not exactly the same as the autonomous Catholic university and the ordinary of the diocese in which the university resides, I do believe presuppositions to an effective bishop-university relationship do exist. If not, you have just heard the briefest presentation of the symposium. A virtue, first of all, I'd like to identify, one which tends not to be characterized as a good word by many in our culture, or even some within their own, our own church, ordained, consecrated, and lay people alike, is the word, this charged word, obedience. This word, obedience, culturally charged as it is, enjoys a principal role in the discipline of teaching, Bishop and university both. For me, I am reminded by the apostolic exhortation that as taking on the very features of Jesus, I am to be a model and promoter of a spirituality of communion, carefully and vigilantly working to build up the church so that all I say and do will reflect a common filial submission in Christ and in the spirit to the loving plan of the Father. As a teacher of holiness and minister for the sanctification of my people, 
I am called to carry out faithfully the will of the Father. My obedience must be a lived example. If I whine and complain about our Holy Father or about other bishops, how can I actually justly expect for you to obey my words? My obedience must be a lived example of the obedience of Christ himself, who said that he came down from heaven not to do his will, but rather the one who sent him. John 6, 38, 8, 29, as well as Philippians 2, 7 through 8. Obedience shares an inseparable link with community. As Pastorus Gracious further illustrates, the communal dimension of my office compels me to live. How I live matters to others. The Catholic faith is on your daily radar with many of your other thoughts and concerns. For us, for all the faithful, the church is relevant. This Monday, I travel to Washington, D.C. for the Holy Father's historic visit to the United States. My diocesan IT office has just enabled me a blog platform. So I don't, don't just tweet now, I blog. So that I may share Pope Francis Bishop here to the United States and convey that through the electronic media through an American bishop's perspective. Uh, yes, I am not bashful about free advertisement, as long as it serves the good of the church. My obedience is not insufferable, but joyful and without end. In the same apostolic exhortation, St. John Paul touches upon the theme for me to evangelize, to go out into the world and to preach the gospel, Mark 16, 15. These are Jesus' very words as he empowers the disciples to evangelize, to inform humanity that the kingdom of God is at hand. As your chief shepherd, I have the distinct role to proclaim the gospel, which is incumbent upon the whole church and for each of her children. By virtue of my ordination within the apostolic succession, one of my principal responsibilities is to proclaim the gospel. With the courage imparted by the Holy Spirit, I'm to call people to faith and strengthen them in living the faith. Christus Dominus, number 12. For example, in my Episcopal ministry, I introduced by public media, Ask the Bishop an e-initiative on our diocesan website, as well as published monthly in the Steubenville Register. I've been told that at the end of the month, I believe, if not being a next, next month, I'll have answered my 100th question. I did not begin ATB because I needed one more thing to do. No, from my time as a parish priest, both as a parochial vicar as well as a pastor, I identified the need to invite questions from our younger brothers and sisters because if they ask questions about their faith, then their faith matters to them. It's on their radar. Time and time again, 
the ATB initiative has reminded me that the Holy Spirit's purposely, purpose eternally exceeds my humble intentions. Whether at the grocery store or at the hardware store, yes, I do get out. Not necessarily wearing this at Kroger or at Lowe's or M&M Hardware or Reesbeck's. Adults have approached me and shared their gratitude for Ask the Bishop. They even have gone so far as to disagree with me. <laughs> yes, there are people out there who disagree with the bishop. Asserting that the Ask the Bishop audience is not limited to kindergarten through 12th grade, those who submit the questions for publication. I found out the youth tend to be the ambassadors of you or of the older children. ATB has had an unintended consequence. This initiative is not limited to our children, but has reached out to all of God's children. As I mentioned, my vocation as your bishop is not limited to the human gifts of Jeffrey Mark Monfort. And if that's the case, I can't understand how things have gone these past three years, seeing God's grace work among all of us. I would have fallen on my face within the first 30 seconds after ordination had that been the case. In order for me to exercise my office of love, I must remain close to the source of my Episcopal calling, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In my complete obedience, I am free to serve God and his people with the threefold functions I received at ordination. By centering on Jesus Christ, and not myself. I allow the Holy Spirit to work through me as I show our brothers and sisters how to follow the will of our Heavenly Father. This pectoral cross I've been using as show and tell from time to time when I visit schools, but also for the classroom. I showed it with, to my class, uh, Christian Moral Principles, I believe it was a couple weeks ago or a couple classes ago. This pectoral cross, which of course graces the pectoral re region here, the heart and lungs, the muscles, the sternum, is a reminder who's closest to my heart. This pectoral cross was given to me at my Episcopal ordination by Saint, by, by Cardinal Mita. I've elevated him to these. He, he's, he, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that, but he would also remind me he's still alive. So I'm going to pay for that one, I'm sure. Can we edit some of this stuff too for later on? No, why? That's right. I just want to make sure this doesn't go from evangelization or EWTN to the comedy channel. So that's my focus. But Cardinal Mita gave me this at Episcopal Ordination, reminding me he received this at a synod from St. John Paul himself to carry that on. A reminder, who is the closest to my heart? Because, no, I did not own a pectoral cross as a priest. I owned none of that stuff. So I had to acquire a lot of that stuff, and gratefully, some of it, most of it came through gifts. I must allow... By setting myself on Jesus, I must allow the Holy Spirit to work through me as I show our brothers and sisters, you, how to follow the will of our Heavenly Father. And that takes me to the Catholic University. First of all, as I begin this section on Catholic University, I want you to know of my profound love and unwavering support for Franciscan. I know you don't necessarily need to hear that, but you still should hear that. You constantly keep the heart of the church close and dear to you, and it does not go unnoticed by your ordinary. 
Second, as I began with the Catholic University and the new evangelization, they are inseparable. I begin with yet another quote from St. John Paul. Rightfully so, since at the ushering in of the third millennium Christianity, he himself turned a page in the universal church's history with the call for the new evangelization. He writes, From the beginning of the church, this mission to evangelize has been an integral part of the church's family. From the beginning. This is not simply a third millennium initiative. The Apostle Paul was quite aware of this when he wrote, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. We should allow the following quote to burn within our academic, our missionary identity. Born from the church, born from the heart of the church, a Catholic university is located in that course of tradition which may be traced back to the very origin of the university as an institution. It has always been recognized as an incomparable center of creativity and dissemination of knowledge for the good of humanity by vocation. Both the universal magisterium and the scholars are dedicated to research. Yes, I do read and I broaden and deepen my understanding. We do this together to teach and to educate students who freely associate with their teachers in a common love of knowledge. With, other, with every other university, of course, we're not an island unto ourselves as at Franciscan. We share that Gaudium de Veritate, so precious to St. Augustine. That joy of the truth to share that. The joy of searching for, discovering and communicating truth in every field of knowledge. As we've heard from previous speakers, yes, in the sciences. And certainly when it comes to biology or the economic sciences. The Catholic University has the privileged task to unite existentially by intellectual effort two orders of reality that too frequently tend to be placed in opposition as though they were antithetic, anti antithetical. The source for truth and the certainty of already knowing the font of truth. St. John Paul continues by stating that a Catholic university pursues its objectives through its formation of an authentic human community animated by the Spirit of Christ. Animated by the Spirit of Christ. Emphasis mine. The source of unity springs from a common dedication to the truth, a common vision of the dignity of the human person, and ultimately the person and message of Christ which gives the institution character. St. John Paul underscores the need for freedom, charity, mutual respect, for we are fellow charioteers which enable one another to search for and to teach the truth. The Catholic University participates 
in the daily life of the local church. For the university is not an ivory tower. Yes, you may sit on a hill, but there's no moat, nor dragons or ogres. Well, you may say there may be the ogres, but let's not go there right now. Protecting this university. No. It is open, and the people of Steubenville, the people of the Diocese of Steubenville, are your fellow brothers and sisters, as are you theirs. The Catholic University participates in the daily life of the church. But again, we are not that ivory tower. To believe so is a Gnostic approach that has no room in the Catholic curriculum. No, the Catholic University freely shares the truth of Jesus Christ and in turn further fortifies the local bishop's teaching office in the pastoral setting of the community. This takes us to dialogue and cooperation. The directory of the pastoral ministry of bishops highlights the bishop's ministry in a particular church. I draw upon two subheadings. One, principles of communion and principles of cooperation. As the ordinary, it is imperative that I be the visible principle and foundation of the Diocese of Steubenville. Just what does that mean? Glad you asked. I am mandated, in the midst of dialogue, I am mandated, better yet, three years ago, I promised to promote unity in faith, in love, and in discipline, so that in all the dioceses, I'm aware they form a vital part of the whole people of God, not in sterile conformity, but encompassing legitimate diversity. This must be performed through pastoral visits, as well as timely reflection and prayer in order to ascertain the general spiritual health of the diocese, of which Franciscan University is a vital member. Constant dialogue with the university is paramount, not just my knowledge of the academic community, but for the members of the university to be confident in my shepherd's care and support. The postmodern university landscape seems to constantly be in flux, that I'm obliged to engage in constant dialogue with all the faithful here, especially in timely meetings with the president of the university himself. Of course, you must certainly do not need a helicopter bishop hovering over the university each and every day. You see, in this area of dialogue, the bishop is exhorted to encourage the creative work of theologians. Of course, research which respects theological method. Within the discipline of dialogue, the university seeks to more effectively communicate the meaning of Christian revelation as transmitted in scripture, tradition, and the church's magisterium. Essential pillars of any Catholic university's transparent Catholic identity. Yes, I'm probably begging questions on that one. To that end, as the university pursues St. Anselm's definition of theology as faith-seeking understanding, there should remain steadfast respect of the bishop's authority and 
Catholic doctrine. There is no delete button on Catholic doctrine. Consequently, dialogue between the ordinary and the theologians is essential. I quote, this is especially true today when the results of research are so quickly and so widely communicated throughout the media. How many people have learned their Catholic faith through Time magazine? Or the Pope's remarks have all been translated and verified infallibly by Newsweek. No. This, as a Pope, St. John Paul says, dialogue is essential because, especially true today, when the results of research are so quickly and so widely communicated through the media. This sentence is not completely original, as I said on my part. The second half of the sentence is from St. John Paul and the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith some 25 years ago. Prophetic. In other words, from both St. John Paul and his successor, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, this all takes on to the theme of cooperation between the bishop and the university. Cooperation. Catholic ecclesiology of communion, ecclesiology of communion instructs that I am to involve all Christians in the one mission of the church. I cannot carry the banner of Jesus Christ and run halfway from here to Pittsburgh, seeing all of you still sitting down on the benches here at Franciscan. Some leader I am, if that's the case. You must be involved. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, I may be behind the wheel of the diocese, but all of you are not seated in the back seat content with viewing various Netflix forms or downloads of virtual reality programs. No. I once told somebody, they said, do you watch any reality programs on TV? And I looked at them and I said, I am a reality program. <laughs> that hasn't made the Herald Star yet, but... You see, you and I are in this together. It's an overused expression, nevertheless true. The principle of cooperation, the principle of subsidiarity, if I may, instructs that all Christians possess the right and duty to cooperate in the mission of Jesus Christ entrusted to his church. The venue by which this occurs is through our own God-given vocation and gifts, we have received from the Holy Spirit, particular at baptism, at confirmation, through our fre frequent reception of Jesus' body and blood. And of course, strengthened in Dullaby, perhaps at ordination, certainly at that great gift of sacrament of matrimony, consecration, religious life. My responsibility, my role, my vocation as a bishop is to communicate to you your sense of responsibility as well as the university community. Instead of creating an atmosphere of distrust and fear, 
And sometimes that distrust and fear begins at the university level instead of at the bishop's level, and Dr. Hendershot certainly explained that so quite well, giving a few examples. I am to communicate to you my full confidence that you will accept with utmost zeal the task before you to evangelize our brothers and sisters. I can't tell you how many bishops at the various meetings I go to come to me thanking me for the catechists that come out of Francisco University now employed at their chancery in one role or, or another. And I nod, I smile, I said, you're welcome, realizing I probably 95% graduated from here before I was even ordained a bishop. But I'll take credit for it, that's fine. That's no <laughs> As outlined in the Apostolic Ex Constitution Ex Corde, each Catholic university must recognize its relationship to the local church that is essential to its identity. Polarity cannot exist. There must be unity. Yes, will there be dialogue, discussion, disappointment? Welcome to the human race, and there's been disappointment since the early church. A lot of dialogue, a lot of work. And Lord's kingdom comes among us through the virtue of God's church, Jesus Christ's church, the Catholic church. As an institution of scholarship and inquiry, the university participates directly in the life of the particular church and contributes to her life and mission. Ex corde number 27. Yes, I may have to drive uphill. Actually, I drive downhill from my house, and then I have to drive back uphill here, but neither one of us resides in an ivory tower. We are out there among the people. You are part of the Diocese of Steubenville. If anyone here is willing to disagree with that statement, I encourage you to attend Sunday Mass at St. Peter and at Holy Name Catholic Churches in Steubenville, which I affectionately call respectively Franciscan East and Franciscan West. The university administration, faculty, staff, and students do not remove their Franciscan identity when they attend these churches for Sunday Mass or celebrate the Sacrament of Penance. On the contrary, they proudly and rightfully so wear their university identity for all to see. Each year, when the academic school year begins, the Catholic population of the Diocese of Steubenville grows by 2,000 souls. And for that, I am grateful. Essential to the local church is the Catholic University's institutional fidelity to the church especially in the matter of faith and morals, my domain. The annual Oath of Fidelity Mass, usually celebrated each August, does not simply ensure the university's identity. This particular moment is a burning light for all to see in the entire Catholic education world. Newsflash, not all Catholic universities celebrate the mandatum. Or do the professors take the oath of fidelity? Or even the profession of faith? You see, in our mutual cooperation as bishop and the Catholic University, our mutual cooperation, you fortify my teaching role 
by reaching out to a vast community which could be, would be impossible for me to reach otherwise. I may walk with the crozier at Mass, but that does not make me Gandalf shooting lightning strikes all over the place for all to see and to resonate. It doesn't happen that way. Thank goodness. I don't know where that lightning strike would hit from once, once in a while. Moreover, you strengthen the position of my brother bishops, those of you who are not here within the Diocese of Steubenville outside the academic year or the ordinary part of the academic year. You strengthen them, especially those bishops who may find themselves in arduous, difficult situations with their own Catholic universities, which advertise themselves as Catholic, but the very instruction, the richness of the Catholic tradition within their walls is found wanting. Now, I'm not taking the coward's way out here when I say much of what I just said about my role applies to you as well. Remember, the kerygma is highly contagious. Our eyes must always be on Jesus Christ, morning, noon, and night. The words ring well through the Constitution on Catholic Universities as the university is described as born from the heart of the church. You are not dangling out there. It's like, oh, it's nice to have you out there. Help me out. No, you're from the heart, the pectoral region of the church herself. In other words, growth and production are expected, and the Catholic University is aware of its source and also its summit. St. John Paul, in his introduction in Ex Corde, provides clear direction for the Catholic University when he states, it is the honor and responsibility of a Catholic university to consecrate itself without reserve to the cause of truth, to the cause of truth. It does this without fear, but rather enthusiasm, dedicating itself to the very path of knowledge, aware of being preceded by him who is the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. We are fully aware that the Catholic University is the very stage where faith and reason dialogue. Here is where the world witnesses the harmony between faith and reason, thus pointing all the unity to truth. It is my hope to me this morning, I'm not simply preaching to the choir, but teaching the choir. This symposium is a striking reminder that our role as theologians, you heard me right, our role as theologians, I make that comment to my class, many who are freshmen and sophomores. I inform them when they come out of the class, Christian moral principles, they are not going to be well-versed moral theologians. It's just beginning. But they are theologians, perhaps when it comes to the knowledge of the truth at varying degrees. They still have a responsibility. The school has thousands of theologians. Our role of theologians is not to convert the converted. Fortify them, yes, but not to convert them. They're already converted. No, instead to formulate a protocol, a game plan, if I may, to stoke the flames of faith in our fellow brothers and sisters whose faith has gone asleep or dormant. 
I talked about a game plan. Beginning this morning, of course, I joined you for our first presentation to Dr. Hendershot. I did not join you for brunch. I had my own brunch at the house because I forgot to write my talk today, so I thought I was doing it at the left. Just kidding, just kidding. But it's cleaning, looking over again, cleaning it. And then I, after my two cups of coffee and my V8 and rest of my breakfast, I mostly down over here, arriving five minutes before the presentation. My day's not done following our panel discussion this afternoon. I have a, a gathering to visit later on, a funeral I was not able to make because actually I was here uh, receiving the oath of fidelity. And there's a celebration, a 60th anniversary of a couple. And two weeks before, no, actually it'd be more than two weeks before, the two weeks before the, the actual anniversary, or a month or two before, just before the actual anniversary, after everything was prepared for the big anniversary celebration for today, he died. So the family is still coming together with the widow, and I told her that I would show up to have a chance to visit. I couldn't make the funeral, but I showed up at the beginning before the funeral. I walked out with the procession from the back of the uh, sacristy, down where the casket was at the front of the church, the back of the church, excuse me, and I had a chance to visit with the widow, and the family was there. We said a little prayer, then I left. They have not forgotten that. I could have just basically said, I can't make the funeral, sorry. Read a letter, a hundred times I have to, I'm not even on the same continent that a letter has to be read, but I was able to go out of my way to visit and then make it over here. I'm doing the same thing after our panel discussion to visit with the family, and then I'm not done yet. Seven o'clock tonight, we have, uh, for some people, the holy day of obligation, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, more so than the going to Mass, Catholic Central has a football game at home. So I will be there. Not dressed like this. It's supposed to rain. This does not look good wet. So we're gonna, I'll go there, ready for rain, be there for at least the first half, having a chance to visit with people, realizing a lot of them have not perhaps graced the doors of the church in a while. And I'm not going to be there to berate them. I'm going to be there to be with them and to say hello. The students for, to see that. For me to bless the football team, whether they win or not, my blessing won't necessarily have much of a say on that, but at least with the confidence knowing that the bishop's there at the ball game. And I have a chance to visit some of the people in the stands for them to see me, that you like sports. Actually, I love sports, and like I said, it's one of the perfect metaphors for life. you got to be there. So my day will end somewhere about 13 or 14 hours after it began. I'm fine with that. I love it. It's who I am. You see... My job is to stoke the flames of that metanoia, that conversion experience in others, especially our brothers and sisters where faith has gone asleep or dormant. Metanoia is not some inconsequential Greek word of long ago. No, the road to conversion is essential to each one of us for our spiritual GPS. Keeping with the theme of the global positioning satellite, our purpose here is not to prepare a roadmap to be faithfully followed without deviation. Oh, the road before us may have some surprises in store. Multiple intersections or confluences which may complicate our spiritual GPS standing, both good and bad. But as our Lord says, put out into the deep. We have the truth. We need direction and it is imperative we do this together. Remember, our lives are living encounters with Jesus Christ. 
Waving the Bible or the catechism at someone is not going to force them into spiritual metanoia. Evangelization must first begin within us. If you and I do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if we do not obey our Lord and God, unconvincing witnesses and unproductive stewards, we will be. On the other hand, we must convey, remain acutely aware that we are willing witnesses in what now is an increasingly secularized world. I recall an interview I had with Ms. Emily Stimson early on in my episcopate. We discussed the reality of lukewarm or even disinterested fellow Catholics, while I, in some ways some navite, focused on the Catholics who were perhaps angered with the church or too embarrassed to return, Ms. Stimson rightfully underscored the need for us to reach out to our brothers and sisters who do not envision the church to be even relevant. Unfortunately, I believe this group, I know this, larger, this group is larger of the disengaged Catholics in need of faith comes from hearing. Many of our brothers and sisters through baptism and confirmation have lost touch. Having received confirmation and baptism have lost touch. This is no time to despair though. For as our present age that manifests challenges more difficult than these, even if we are like the little flock, we bear witness to the gospel message of salvation and we are called to be salt of the light of the world. Light to the world. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. The kerygma, the very announcement of our salvation in Jesus Christ is timeless. Our role is to promote our faith in the third millennium language and delivery. Whether it's a tweet, a blog, or here's something new, face-to-face -face discussion. In conclusion, both the diocesan bishop and the Catholic University possess distinct yet complementary roles. Neither one of us exists in a vacuum. The people of God depend on our dialogue between faith and reason for clarity. As one defending the deposit of faith, I am obliged to assist the Catholic University, enabling it to promote truth through critical thought and steadfast fidelity to God and his church. As you most likely have gleaned from this presentation, the principle of subsidiarity is crucial to the local church's ability to reach out and to teach. Perhaps words from an author whose works I grew up with summarizes the work before us as fellow collaborators, C.S. Lewis. He pens, the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. You and I must remember that the Lord's vineyard may not just need tending, it may be a desert in need of growth. In Pauline terminology, you and I are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You and I matter in the sharing of the good news, but we cannot embrace our roles by being stationary or polarized. We must be in motion together. St. John Paul, quoting directly from Jesus, provides us with this spiritual GPS. Duke and Altum, yes, we must go out, put out into the deep, if we are to be effective. St. John Paul's words, these words of Jesus ring out for us more over today in 2015. And they invite us to remember the past with gratitude, to live the present with enthusiasm, and to look forward to the future with confidence. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, 
today, and forever. And so together, as we venture, as intrepid pilgrims, endeavoring to share the good news, we prayerfully ask for the intercession of the Mother of the Church, patroness of the Diocese of Steubenville, Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Francis of Assisi, and the patron saint of all universities, St. Thomas Aquinas. God bless you all. First, uh, I want to pick up on one of his points. Ex Court Ecclesia, born from the heart of the church. As he mentioned, the world has the church, and particularly the bishops, to thank for the university. There were no universities before the Middle Ages, period, anywhere. Okay. It isn't that there wasn't learning, is that there wasn't a gathering together under the uh, intellectual and moral and spiritual authority of uh, something like the Catholic Church. And so the first universities were cathedral schools. That's a very important historical point. There wouldn't be universities without the Catholic Church. So we have bishops to thank for that. It's cathedral schools. Now, what's important about that is at these cathedral schools, and as it developed over you know, the next 300 years from the, about the year 1000, all subjects were taught. It wasn't mere theology, as if theology was mere. Uh, it was all aspects from mathematics to grammar to astronomy to music. So the university always reached out to all areas of the human intellect. And that's important. That is, uh, the church wasn't the origin of the university merely as teaching theology. The church embraced reason because it believes at its very heart and from its very heart that reason and revelation cannot contradict. We have nothing to fear from reason. That is, we have nothing to fear from any of the disciplines as long as they're rightly formed. And that is how the university became the teaching organ or institution of Europe and evangelization. It was essentially connected to evangelization, but it was an evangelization in the form of a gathering of all knowledge into one, hence the una in university. Now we know we have a multiversity now. That is, we have the situation uh, which Bishop Monfortin uh, uh, I'll say hinted, hinted isn't strong enough, but guess what? His situation here is uh, wonderful, and I'm sure he prays every morning, thank you that I'm not in the Diocese of Georgetown, not that I'm naming names, or other universities which openly contradict the faith uh, and are very secularized. And so our situation is like the original cathedral schools in that. However, we realize that Ex Corte Ecclesia was issued precisely because universities throughout the world, not just in America, but, but mainly Europe and America, and, uh, and including Catholic universities, took it as their seeming goal to attack and undermine nearly every aspect of the Catholic faith whether directly or indirectly. That is, what you have is that although the universities began within the heart of the church, they, they became secularized historically. And secularized doesn't mean, uh, it has the, the original meaning in, in the church of not being a part of a religious order, 
does not mean that now. It means actively trying to turn people away from God, away from any notion of immortality of the soul, and towards this material existence on the earth as the only uh, goal that is uh, worthy of our, our concern. And that transformation that occurred within universities in Europe and America is what Ex Corte Ecclesiae was trying to answer. Now, a quick history of that um, is really beyond the amount of time that we have, but even to provide a quicker one, European universities became highly secularized in the 1700s and 1800s, okay? And that was an active attempt to remove the church from the center of culture, that is to remove the church from the center of the university. Therefore, the universities became the intellectual center of rebellion. Americans did not have any university systems, so in the 1900s they went to Europe and, and primarily the German universities and came back with a highly secularized understanding of the intellectual life and the goal of the university. Um, that transformed all kinds of universities in America uh, and the sort of the dike broke in about the 50s and the 60s in regard to most Catholic universities. That's why Franciscan University is the exception. Okay, so we're, we're in the context of understanding that Franciscan University is the exception. Franciscan University is trying to act out on the original relationship of the, uh, the bishop to the university. And the question is, of course, what do we do? What kinds of light are we going to try to ignite? And Bishop Monfortin is doing the right thing. However, this is not the only diocese, and so Franciscan University, as a place of renewal, does have a central historical place in saving the university, and hence the culture, because much of the secularizing um, that was released in the 1718 and 1900s came from the universities, that is, the ones that were secularized. And so as the university was one of the original instruments for the intellectual and spiritual and moral evangelization of Europe, then later became the instrument of secularizing, that is, de-Christianizing. So once again, and it's, well, I shouldn't say once again, it still has that goal, its original goal that brought, made Europe into Christendom. That is, it was an evangelizing goal in regard to all aspects of, of human knowing. So it's a big thing. The university is under siege. I don't think anyone is confused about the, the again, the, the, that we are one of the few exceptions. And so what Franciscan University does will have or will not have the greatest of historical influence. That is, you know, it's in our court. And so just when it sounds like I was saying that His Excellency had nothing to do because, gosh, you're right here in Franciscan. It's not like being next to, a, you know, one of the renegade universities. In fact, perhaps maybe more of a burden is on him because this is what going to be one is and can be one of the great renewing universities that if you hang around for 500 years, you might be reading about in a history textbook in a class in a university or not, depending on what we do. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.